as much as I think the the tradition can help us return to ideas that have been solidified and codified and they need to be conserved. At the same time, when you look back at these great theologians who have stood the test of time, they were trying to respond to new problems in their context. Aquinas is a classic example. He's dealing with Aristotelian science that had not been integrated into Christianity in any systemic way. And so he's coming up with original solutions to the problem. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today, we have part two of our conversation with CPT fellow Danny Hauk on Thomas Aquinas and the challenge of evolution. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, I encourage you to go check that out. It's the episode immediately previous to this one, where we talk about Thomas's uh, doctrine of original sin, uh, particularly in contrast with that associated with St. Augustine. We talk a little bit more about that, but then we get into the evolution question in this episode. So, without further ado, let's get back into our discussion with Reverend Dr. Danny Hauk. Hey, welcome everyone to the CPT podcast. Uh, We're back with Danny Hauk, who is a CPT fellow uh, pastors in Fairfax, Virginia. We had a great part one of this conversation, and now we're coming back for part two. If you didn't listen to part one, would certainly encourage you to, to go ahead and do that. Um, but excited about picking this back up. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for coming back on with us. Great to be with you guys again. Thanks for uh, making it a part two. Keeping the dream alive. Yeah, we also have Zach Wagner with us, of course, here today. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to try to do my best to do a brief recap of part one, just to set the context for for where we want to go with this conversation. I'm not going to get I'm not going to go into the weeds and get all the details right, but basically, the, what we did la- in, in the last conversation, uh, Danny is a Aquinas scholar. Uh, we heard a bit about Danny's story and how he he moved towards. Aquinas, some of the, the the concerns that were in his heart and mind that brought him to Aquinas, and kind of through that we got into Aquinas's theological anthropology, uh, which is a, a, a key uh, concern of Danny's and his research. Uh, in addition to that, then through, or through that, we we had a, a really great conversation kind of with Danny, helping us to understand Aquinas's view of of salvation. Uh, Aquinas's view of humanity, the way that perhaps the Western Protestant tradition has had some misunderstandings of Aquinas, particularly around the relationship between reason and revelation. Uh, Danny helpfully kind of positioned us to think maybe a little bit differently that Aquinas isn't just a guy who says that that reason trumps revelation or reason is one path and revelation is another path, but rather that Reason is really situated within an overall vision of divine revelation in Aquinas. Uh, that also then kicked off some conversations about Aquinas and Luther and the way that we understand original sin in the Lutheran Protestant in the you know, broader Protestant tradition and how Aquinas has some real insights for us into that. Danny, did I did I summarize that decently well? Absolutely. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so we feel good about where we are. The table is set. Uh, now I, now I want to dig in to some, some further issues that really come out in, in Danny's book on Aquinas, original sin and evolution. Uh, so Danny, why don't you just begin here with giving us a bit of an overall, uh, uh view of the thesis of your book. Um, and then from that, I think we can then talk more directly about uh, you, your understanding of, of evolution, how Aquinas plays into that, how these things can can come together and help shape our pastoral imagination. Absolutely. So I think it might be helpful to start with what I call the challenge of evolution. And that basically refers to a series of problems that mainstream evolutionary theory has created or has at least been thought to create for traditional accounts of original sin and in particular St. Augustine's account of original sin. And in the book, I suggest that we can group these challenges into three basic challenges, three distinct challenges. And I call them the challenge of continual origins complex origins and communal origins. And I'll just, I'll be very brief and then we can, we can dig into these as much as we want, but I'll just start with a really brief overview of what these challenges are and how I think Aquinas can help respond to them. So what I call the challenge of continual origins is basically a challenge that is created by the modern synthesis of Darwin's theory of natural selection and uh, Mendel's theory of particulate inheritance or or genes, the basis of modern uh, genetics. And in a nutshell, according to the modern synthesis or synthetic theory, change in evolutionary development happens very slowly, right? It, it's It's a very, very gradual process. Whereas on the Augustinian theory of original sin, you have this idea that Adam's one act of pride completely corrupted and changed human nature to be passed on through all the different generations. Whereas in a, in a contemporary biological context, the idea that a volition would change your germline DNA makes no sense whatsoever. So that's the first fundamental problem. Um, our origins are, are continuous. They move very gradually. Uh, single volitions don't have effect uh, on on human nature in that in that respect. Now, the I'll just I'll just say quickly actually how I think Aquinas helps, and then I'll move to the next two challenges instead of just doing all three. That might be easier. So, the as we talked about last week, Aquinas frames the fall into sin differently from Augustine. Instead of thinking of the fall as the corruption of human nature. He thinks of it as the loss of a gracious gift, or we might say in modern terms, we might say the loss of a right relationship with God. And so I suggest that if we think of the fall into sin in that respect, the loss of a gracious relationship with God, the friendship with God, we might say, there's no conflict with the idea that we have evolved uh, in precisely the way that contemporary evolutionary theory suggests. The idea would be that at the beginning of human history, God granted a, a friendship, a special friendship with humanity. And as on the basis of human sin, that friendship was lost. 
but it has nothing to do with the corruption of germline DNA or the corruption of human nature at all. It just doesn't require that Augustinian thesis that nature was corrupted. So that's the first challenge and the first way that I think Aquinas can be helpful. Yeah. Could, should we yeah. Um, stop and interject discussion here, Joel? Or do you think, because yeah. yeah. so that brings up, I wonder if we just take these one at a time, because that sure. reminds me, I think that's a really helpful distinction there. Um, and that not only is it interesting in terms of the kind of quote unquote reconciliation of evolutionary theory with a certain Christian tradition and of original sin, but it also helps elucidate the differences between the Thomistic and the Augustinian accounts of original sin. So that's helpful and on multiple levels. One thing it reminded me of is, um, you know, my time studying with John Walton, who's taught at, at Wheaton for years, and he's written not so much explicitly from the evolutionary biology angle, but he does a lot of ancient Near Eastern backgrounds, and he's done stuff on historical Adam original sin, this, this sort of stuff as well. Um, and I've heard him, or read him, I can't remember which, um, describe the Edenic state as something that human beings were given access to, i.e. access to the, the tree of life or access to immortality or whatever that ca- whatever the case may be. And I'm not, you know, fully adopting a kind of concordist view of the biblical account with scientific theory or anything like that. And John Walton would strongly reject um, what's sometimes called a concordist view. But it does highlight, I think, something that's really interesting um, namely that the created perfection that we think of associated with an Augustinian account of the fall and of original sin and things like that is um, not straightforwardly the only way, way to read the um, first three chapters of Genesis, number one. Um, and number two, not the only way that even the broad Christian tradition has understood these. I think there can be a tendency, particularly within low church evangelicalism through our inheritance of Augustine through our kind of Protestant tradition. We just assume that this has been a kind of monolithic way of reading Genesis one to three and all Christians have thought this, this way about it. So, um, and that kind of assumption is often juxtaposed against this quote unquote problem of evolution, it seems to me. And um, I think it's just, it's striking to me immediately, just even with just this, this first uh, problem and uh, the help that Thomas gives, how immediately some of these tensions seem to seem to dissipate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of potential congruity between the approach you just mentioned in Walton and some other Old Testament scholars as well, and Thomas's view, namely that Thomas is very clear that the tree of life and the gift of immortality is a gift that doesn't belong mm-hmm. to human nature. Now, it's not innate in that sense. Yeah. As I understand it, there's actually some debate among Augustine scholars about the precise role of the tree of life. So sure. It's definitely the case, though, that in the mature Augustine, that human nature is basically what Adam and Eve receive when they're created, and that mm-hmm. the freedom from concupiscence or freedom from disordered concupiscence, 
and this friendship with God belongs to human nature and the nature is corrupted. As I say, the exact role of the tree of life, I believe there's some debate about that. And I'm not well versed in that debate and in the kind of Augustine studies realm of things. But Aquinas is very clear that that gift would have been supernatural and that mm-hmm. immortality does not belong to human nature as such in the proper sense. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's room for some really interesting dialogue there. In my own, in this book, I actually didn't offer a uh, an in-depth uh, reading of Genesis 3. I was very focused on originated original sin, but that's an area that I'm looking to do more work in going forward. And I think I, I really agree that Walton's work, other other scholars' work on the historical background there, I think could be very interesting in dialogue with Aquinas. Yeah. So let me let me ask, um, you know, in a in a Augustinian view, human nature itself is corrupted by the decision that Adam and Eve make. That's passed on uh, person to person, generation to generation. Um, Obviously, Aquinas has a vision that human nature has become corrupted, right? This corrupted concupiscence idea. Um, in Aquinas, what? So you're you're putting this in the relational frame. Adam and Eve had access to God. Uh, that access is now revoked. That then is the what creates then the disordered concupiscence. Is that? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. The key for Aquinas, and this is so important, and it's the cause of so much confusion in the secondary literature on Aquinas. And one one of the main burdens of the book is to try to dispel the confusion, untangle some of these knots in interpreting Aquinas. So I spend a lot of time on this in the Aquinas section of the book. The, the absolute key is that he uses the word natural and nature in actually many, many ways, but there's two crucial ways, two salient ways for this discussion, in one sense, nature is the principles and properties of human nature. And that's nature as essence. In a broad sense, nature refers to what is good for the human being. That's nature in the looser sense. And what Mm -hmm. Aquinas says in the fall, what happens in the fall is that nature in the proper sense is not affected. So strictly speaking, human nature refers to these principles and properties uh, and those remain, but what is lost is the supernatural gift of friendship, the gracious gift of God, but from a different angle and in a different sense of the word natural, you can also call friendship with God natural because it's good for the human person. And in that sense, Aquinas can also speak of the corruption of human nature. He can bring the Augustinian language into the mix. And he does this quite a bit in question 109. Uh, through in the treatise on grace, so-called 109 through 114, the prima secunda, he uses a lot of Augustinian language. And if you just jump into that treatise and you don't know the semantics of natura, if you don't know mm. the different senses, it, you can get completely confused. And and that's happened to a lot of scholars. They just kind of jump mm. in there. They don't pay attention to the deeper, uh, different senses of the word nature. But hopefully that helps a bit, Joel, to your question. In the yeah, second, yeah, go ahead, Joel. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think it, it helps to, to see that Aquinas does have a vision of of corruption, obviously, yeah. but it's the way he's coming at that. It's not this genetic approach, mm. right? It's it's this disorder because we're out of relationship with God. That yeah, that's that, right. And it's it's and I don't want to. We can 
I don't want to get too into the weeds on this. Uh, sure. We got other things we want to hit on. Yeah, but yeah. it's complicated because Aquinas does have a vision of original justice being sexually transmitted and okay. correspondingly mm. of original sin being sexually transmitted. But the key is that in both cases, that framework that I mentioned earlier is up and running in which he has a concept of human nature that remains the same before and after the fall mm-hmm. and a concept of the supernatural grace of friendship that God gives and then is, is lost in the fall. And that's what so, I can ex- exploit or use, so to speak, in the contemporary evolutionary context to avoid the problem of these, as I call it, the continuous origins, uh, synthetic theory, uh, modern genetics, etc. Yeah. So this is so fascinating, Danny. Um, so is if I'm understanding you correctly, I'm just going to try to summarize this quickly. In Augustine, and this is broad strokes, obviously, but in Augustine, there's a human nature that is essential to what it means to be a human being that because of the fall is corrupted. Whereas in Thomas, there is there are two senses or two types of human nature, or two levels perhaps. Um, the essential human nature is not corrupted by the fall, but there is a, another sense in which he uses the word nature that is opposite to what we might think of as corruption. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, hundred percent correct on Aquinas. With Augustine, it's so tricky. I prefer to talk about the ambiguities in Augustine because Augustine, of course, um, thinks that human beings continue to exist after the fall and so on. So he's not going to say, oh, well, we lost something essential and we don't exist. But there's, there's ambiguities with it because he's using this language that as Aquinas later points out in philosophical texts and in the kind of theological discussion is often associated with what is essential. And so there's this arguably from a Thomistic perspective, this kind of lack of clarity in Augustine's account about how it is that, that how a nature could be corrupted and so on. And so like we've already gotten into, but it's not as though Augustine is making some kind of like obvious contradiction or something like this. I mean, he's a genius, you know, He's not going to, mm-hmm. he's not just going to make some like, it's not about like a, yeah, it's not a silly mistake on Augustine's part. Yeah. It's, it's more about like, well, this could be more clearly understood. And there's, there's distinctions that need to be drawn if we're really going to unpack this. And as I say, that starts happening even in the middle ages. So way, way before any kind of modern problems, but the modern problems yeah. accentuate the difficulties, I think with, yeah. with Augustine. So, yeah. Okay, so that's, the, that's the continual origin piece. I think let's, let's move on. Yep. What the, yep. the, the second one, take us through, through that. Yeah, one. absolutely. Hey everybody, just a quick preview of our annual theology conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians, which we will host in Chicago on October 23rd to 25th. The evangelical tradition places the sermon at the center of church life. But what is our theology of preaching? Does it root the sermon in the miracle of God's word proclaimed or in human persuasiveness and personality? In our day, preaching is easily unmoored from its biblical, theological, and historical anchors. Too often, it has become a tool of celebrity. We have seen pulpits and preaching taken captive by political and pragmatic ideologies. We believe that the church must recapture the Apostle Paul's vision of preaching, preaching that comes not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. 
so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This work will move us beyond homiletical technique. It will challenge our confidence in our own capacities and call into question methods that have subtly shaped our vision of the sermon and elevated human power. Church leaders must remind ourselves, again, that we are, first and foremost, servants, both of God's Word and of God's people. We invite you to join us at the Center for Pastor Theologians 2023 conference, Power and the Pulpit, Recovering a Theology of Preaching. We'll be helped by speakers such as Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, Matthew Kim, Nicole Martin, Kevin Van Hooser, Jeremy Treat, Jennifer McNutt, special guest Mike Cosper, Caitlin Beatty, JT English, Trig Johnson, Jim Samra, Eric Redman, and a whole bunch of others. It's going to be a great conference where we will gather together to seek wisdom and share insight about this important act that we do as pastors and as the church every week. Once again, we invite you to join us for the CPT conference, Power and the Pulpits. You can learn more and sign up to secure your spot at cptconference.com. So the second one, and this one is, is I think, pretty well understood, even in popular discussions of these problems. I mean, this is one that's often brought up pretty quickly by those who are in the theological debates or maybe those outside of it. I call it the problem of complex origins. And basically the problem is that from an evolutionary perspective, it appears that human beings have inherited dispositions to behaviors that we would name as sin. So one example of this is that there's been a a tremendous amount of research on violence in evolutionary history. And there's also a tremendous amount of debate about this. And lately, the pendulum has swung back to an emphasis on the fact that there are, in fact, altruistic behaviors and cooperative behaviors that are shown by non-human animals. So that's kind of where a lot of the discussion is now. But that doesn't negate the fact that we also are aware that non-human animals do commit acts of aggressive violence. I summarized some of that research in the book and violence is just one example. I mean, we could use we could use any number of them, but I use it just because it's convenient and clear. So basically, from an evolutionary perspective, we would expect that the first human beings would have had dispositions to aggressive forms of violence that, from a Christian perspective, we would name sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the expectation. That would have been around in, in uh, pre-human, so to speak, behaviors, and we would expect that it would be there from the very beginning in humans as well, just again, from an evolutionary perspective. That obviously creates a problem though for the doctrine of original justice or original righteousness, which has traditionally been thought of as one of the essential aspects of the Christian meta narrative. Creation is good, that and we fall, right? And then we move toward uh, restoration, reconciliation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it appears there's a contradiction here on the evolutionary story we are created with these sinful dispositions, whereas in, in the uh, Christian story, we're supposed to be created good by God, right? So there's this, this problem. And here, again, I find that the Thomistic nature-grace distinction can be helpful in responding to this, uh, to this kind of 
problem. Um, if you're working with an Augustinian concept of nature, then to me anyway, it's 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 very uh, it's very unclear at, to say the least, if not outright contradictory, to hold to an evolutionary story where all of these kinds of dispositions are developing over long periods of time. And holding on the other hand that human nature is is good and has nothing really mm. to do with those dispositions and so on. Whereas in a Thomistic framework, you can accept, I would suggest, the mainstream evolutionary story and then say that thanks to a supernatural gift of God, human beings had the ability to relate to God in friendship and the ability to overcome sin if they had gone in, into obedience uh, with God. Now, I don't take a position on, there's, there's actually a lot of options, and I list some of them in the book, sub-options within that framework of how you might think about the evolutionary story. Um, you might think, on the one hand, that the grace of God at the beginning of human history was so powerful that it sort of overrode those evolutionary dispositions to sin. So maybe the first humans, um, th- this would be a more, I guess, conservative approach. Uh, and on this picture, it would be have a lot of continuity with the Christian tradition. You know, the grace is so powerful that whoever the first human beings were, wherever they came into existence, they didn't even struggle with temptations that were devi- derived from their evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. Um, or that's one way to go within, but you would, on that account, you would still be able to say that human nature um has, has various dispositions to good and bad behaviors in the basis of evolutionary history. Alternatively, you could, and I lean toward this option myself, um, but I haven't actually made an argument in print for this one way or the other. Alternatively, you could say that, well, the dispositions to sin shouldn't be considered sinful. Sin should be considered something that is intentional, uh, volitional. And mm-hmm. so the first human beings were in a state of friendship with God that was supernatural, but they would have experienced temptations that were derived from their evolutionary history. And they were supposed to overcome them. They were tested, they were tempted, and they failed the test. And so that I'll, I'll leave it there Sure. for now we could discuss, but that's, that's the basic, uh, the basic challenge and the basic way a Thomistic framework can respond. Why don't you go ahead and take us into the third one, and then we can we can kind of loop back to a larger conversation a- across the three. Yeah, absolutely. So the third challenge is what I call the challenge of communal origins, and it's it's basically the challenge that comes from the fact that according to mainstream evolutionary biology, the human population has never really dipped below several thousand individuals. And that's been the case for uh, millions of years. So even, I mean, it's, it's not even close. It's not like, oh, maybe there was a time, you know, and it's kind of borderline whether they were human and it was like a single pair. No, it's, it's been uh, for, for many, many, many uh, years, the case that thousands of individuals were in our population as well as our ancestors' populations. Whereas on the traditional account, you have what's known as strict monogenesis, the idea that all human beings came from Adam and Eve. And in the traditional account of original sin, you have the idea that it's, as we mentioned earlier, Adam's act 
of sin corrupts that human nature, which is then propagated to everyone else. And it's only Christ that is immune from original sin because of the fact that he is born of a virgin and so on. And of course, there's Mariological complications as well that we could get into, but that's a bit of a, a bit of a side trail for this discussion, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but that's roughly, roughly the way it worked. But if the challenge comes from the fact that if there was no original pair, then there's really only a couple of options and they both are arguably problematic from a traditional perspective. So on the one hand, you might say, well, um, maybe there was a large group of human beings and uh, they were all, let's say they were all created uh, righteous or something like this. Maybe, maybe thousands of them were all created with original righteousness. Well, then it appears to be false that Adam's sin brought sin, death, and condemnation to the world, which is what we see in Romans 5, 12 through 19, and was the basis of the origin of the doctrine of original sin in the first place. This whole idea that it was Adam's sin that was that played a pivotal causal role in the transmission of sin. So if you try to say, well, everybody had original righteousness and then everybody fell, arguably that's contradictory to what you see in Romans 5. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you could say that, I mean, you could deny original sin, right? But that creates a problem that you're not taking Romans 5 into account. Or you could try to say, well, maybe somebody was created in original justice, like an Adam figure, and then the other people, they got their sin in some other from some other source, you know, maybe from the evolutionary disposition or something like this. Uh, but then you have to deal with the fact that that appears to put God on the hook for the origin of sin and evil. So basically, big picture, if there's not an original couple from whom everyone else descends and from whom everyone else gets their sin, it it appears that the traditional counts is, is falsified. Um. And this is a this is a, a thorny issue, and it's it's still actually something I'm working on in terms of the the details of these different accounts. What I tried to do in the book was sketch a way that Aquinas's account might help, and basically, the idea is that what I mentioned a minute ago of the possibility of maybe multiple people being created in original righteousness. I think that that's the that's the option that I think if you go with that route with a broadly Thomistic framework of original sin, you could say that, well, okay, let's say God creates a group of people in original righteousness, but he's chosen one of them. Let's say, let's call that guy Adam, <laughs> right? <laughs> and God decides, well, if this guy Adam obeys, then the friendship that the original generation enjoyed, that's going to continue into the next generation. But if that Adam disobeys, then that supernatural gift is going to be withheld. And then subsequent generations are going to be born into sin. Now, I still have to deal on that. If that's the way that I'm suggesting things might have gone, I still have to deal with the objection that there's a number of individuals who were created in original justice and you know, how do I deal with those individuals? Because if they committed sins of their own, then they didn't derive those, they didn't derive their sin from Adam. So that right. seems to be in tension with Romans five. And the response that I would give to that is 
basically to try to draw an analogy between these, we might call them co-Adamites, people that exist at the same time as Adam, draw Mm -hmm. an analogy between them and Eve. Because even in the traditional Mm -hmm. account, there is one human being who did, who was a sinner and who was redeemed by the work, the atoning work of Christ, who nevertheless did not derive her sin from Adam. And that would be Eve. And if I can just briefly interject and say, you might even argue that there's more than one. If you count the, the wives of the sons of Adam and Eve, who, you know, it's just the text is silent in terms of where they come from. Many people will say they were their sisters, but many would say there were other humans around and the text is is silent on that point. So this is really helpful. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, Genesis four is also part of the case, the biblical case that I would make for the possibility of denying strict monogenesis. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's very relevant. And so, and what I would say is that I would, I would apply, and again, it's, it kind of gets into interesting methodological questions about how concordous sure. we want to be and so on. But the general framework that I'm constructing, which could be applied to Genesis 4, if, if someone wants to, it could be applied there, is to say, God is the, is the good creator. So human beings are created good. And in the beginning, they have this relationship, this friendship with God that basically is, plays the role of original righteousness. And the individual's who were created in that state, they all turn away and sin against God. They, but there are more than one of them who play the role of Eve. That's basically the way that I would try to solve this challenge that comes from communal origins. And the way to read Romans five then would be to say that subsequent to Adam's sin, subsequent generations, their sin is caused by Adam's sin in the way that I just sketched out. So it, it depends on a certain read of Romans 5, according to which Paul is focused on the sin that comes subsequent to Adam's sin. And so if that's exegetically valid or, or defensible, I think this, this kind of account can, can go up and running. But you know, there's, it's debatable. And some people will say, no, it has to be everybody. You know, it has to be everybody, period. Well, then I would, but then I would respond and ask, well, what about Eve? Because if you're, if you, you, I would push back that you have to have an exception if Paul's statements are going to come out true. Because if you say, no, it's, it's absolutely everybody except Christ. What about Eve? That would be my kind of pushback, but that that's a debate that is, uh, is ongoing. Um, yeah, I bet, but, yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. The Genesis four stuff. I mean, and if you go with, I mean, the traditional view that, that, uh, Adam's children are marrying uh, their siblings. I mean, then you have this odd, it's a bit of a tangent, but it is closely related. Then you have this oddity where God has ordained incest from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, cause that's the only option. So, that, so yeah, incest solves, becomes- It a, solves one problem, kind of, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems here. So Danny, let me, yeah. let me do this. This has been, this has been really helpful kind of laying this out in these different options and in the way that you've, used Aquinas in the, in the time that we have left, I would like to talk methodologically, um, and, 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 you know, think about, you know, back to a question I asked early in the, in the first part of our conversation on, 
your understanding of the relationship between revelation and reason, faith and science, right? In this kind of a context where we're trying to align things um, and what we believe about the doctrine of scripture and the revelation of God, the evidence of science that we certainly don't want to just downplay. Um, But if you could just step back for a minute here and, and walk us through methodologically how you do try to line these things up, recognizing that, you know, probably not going to solve all these issues with absolute clarity, but what's a methodological approach you would commend for pastors, for the church around not just creation, evolution, original sin, but just more generally around how we understand the relationship of faith and science? I don't know if this counts as a method or not because it's pretty rough. It's not particularly precise, but it's at least the way that I try to go about doing theology. And that is, when it comes to the faith and science discussion, try to do the homework to establish what a given scientific consensus is in a certain area, which can be difficult. And sometimes it's it's difficult because the question of whether there is consensus is debated by people who appear to be experts in the given subject matter. So it's not always so simple as you just look up one thing and you learn what the consensus is and then you move on. You sort of have to just dig into the literature, try to read fairly widely, have conversations with people who are experts to the extent that you can. And that's going to depend on individual circumstances and so on. But basically try to do your homework and figure out what a given consensus is. And then if there's an apparent tension or an apparent conflict, try to think creatively and look back at the Christian tradition and see whether there might be surprising resources that can help address the apparent tension or contradiction. Because I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed that that's always going to create possibilities of reconciliation or harmonization or integration. But often when we look at the historical record of a given doctrine or given idea, we learn nuances and we see complexity and diversity that we didn't necessarily know before we had really looked into it. So with original sin, it's an example. Before I researched this, it's like, oh yeah, jump in, Joel. Sorry, I was going to say, I think this is so important because we do tend to get locked into the moment and the conversations of the moment and the resources of the moment. And, and you're you know, bringing Aquinas into this conversation as a, a Protestant pastor speaking to people. Most of us aren't super schooled in Aquinas um, and finding resources there that help to reframe the conversation and give you options for how to engage it. I just, I think that is really, really important. Um, I think the, the what you're demonstrating to us is just to be careful about how locked into the way that the conversations are framed in our time, in our moment, how that can come to dominate us and really cut off our vision from the great tradition and other resources that we have. And I, I, and I would say it's not the case that it's going to guarantee an easy solution. And that's where it goes to the question of, is this even a method or this is just the way that 
I happen to approach things. But from my perspective, I mean, you may, you may wind up with something surprising. You know, it may be that there's less variety than you expect. <laughs> it may be that in your, in your particular, I, I try to, depro- I try to approach this book from an ecumenical perspective. So people are going to come into these discussions with different uh, ecclesial authorities that are salient and so on. I mean, you may find that there's less room for maneuver maneuverability or, or uh, creativity than you thought there was. But often I think it goes the other way around. You learn that it's more complex and there's the possibility of coming up with maybe a new solution to a new problem. Because as much as, um, as much as I think the, the tradition can help us return to ideas that have been solidified and codified and they need to be conserved at the same time when you look back at these great theologians who have stood the test of time they were trying to respond to new problems in their context aquinas is a classic example he's dealing with aristotelian science that had not been integrated into christianity in any systemic way and so he's coming up with original solutions to the problem and so i think that's what we need but not in a way that ignores the history of development of doctrines and not in a way that ignores the norming nor norming norm of scripture. Mm-hmm. But you know, the question is, are we getting scripture right? You know, so, yeah. and, and I think we should be open, especially, especially those of us who are coming from my own kind of Baptist tradition. I think we need to be open to the continuing and other Protestants as well. And, and Catholics really all Christians in a way, but in a distinctive way in the, in the Baptist tradition, we do need to be open to being, having our, particular theories modified by the witness of scripture uh, in light of in light of also what we're learning from creation. Yeah. This is um, all just so helpful and fascinating, Danny. And it, I, it may um, warm your heart strangely that one of my takeaways from this is that I just have to read more Aquinas or get back into Aquinas. Um, but I wanted to ask or invite you to talk or us to talk for a few minutes about something a bit more narrow, but I think very related to all this, a pastoral question that is also an interest of mine, namely how we relate the way we think and talk about sexual desire. And I would even go narrowly the way um, we associate male or masculine sexual desire with a unique expression of human nature um, and evolution and original sin and virtue formation and all of these things. See if I can uh, state the, the problem that's coming up in my mind succinctly. I think there's an assumption that prevails certainly in the church, but also in the broader culture that um, men by nature are kind of more revved up in their sexual desire or are more inclined towards wanting to act out sexually or pursue multiple sexual partners. This is just kind of a truism of our culture. Um, But it seems to me that this is also something that the church oftentimes adopts, that men are, whatever the case may be, more visual or think about sex more or desire sex more. Um, And this is often described using terms of male nature. It is the nature of being male to have this disposition towards sexual desire. And that coheres, I, th- I think, if I'm understanding correctly, with certain accounts of an evolutionary history and evolutionary biology, where it is expedient in the kind of evolutionary history of 
human beings that men um, pursue multiple sexual partners and kind of spread their genes out across multiple female partners so that more humans can be born because men can be fathers in a kind of limitless way, but women can only be mothers in a very kind of boundary sort of way. So that is then used to say, this is actually for the benefit of the species. And it's for the benefit of the species that men are more promiscuous and women are a bit more uh, inclined towards um, uh, monogamy or whatever the case may be. Um, And, I'm just like pastorally given everything that you've said about Aquinas, given the way we're thinking about original sin, how should we talk to men, be them, be they young men or married men about their nature and their experience of sexual desire in light of some of these things? Because I think there's a, there's a very natural, the, I didn't mean to use the word natural there, but there's a a common tendency to kind of say, well, guys, this is just part of your nature. But from a Christian perspective, I've always found that a little unsatisfactory um, because we want to, I think, uphold the the created goodness of human sexuality. Um, But is there a way to describe a kind of illicit sexual desire as part of human nature or evolutionary history from a Christian perspective. So I hope that gets at, that raises some of the questions that I'm asking because I feel like it's super relevant. And I, you know, on my limited research on this, I dipped my toe into Aquinas on this and was just completely fascinated on the virtue uh, formations implications here. So I know that raises a lot, but I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, briefly in the time that we have. Do we have a follow-up book to non-toxic <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, that- well, I gotta engage with you on the, the, the Aquinas stuff here and you gotta help you just, me because I raised think- so many deep and important questions that I think could be really interesting to pursue for you to pursue in yeah. dialogue with some of these traditional homardiologies. Because yeah. from my perspective, I don't know the literature as you do in this, in this specific area. Sure. Um, but it strikes me as an outsider that there could be some really fruitful discussions from somebody with your background and expertise, but then drawing on some of this traditional homardiology. Mm. And really the main, I mean, I, I certainly, to the very last question you asked, I would say, yeah, certainly in Aquinas, you do have a denial of the idea that post-lapsarian sex is necessarily tinged by sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, a specific claim that I think would be relevant. As far as the evolutionary discussions, it's not an area that I'm widely read in. So I don't really feel competent to uh, to really opine on any of that at this point. But I think it's very interesting, very important in uh, in a number of ways. Yeah. So as I say, that book... Uh, follow-up book there for you. <laughs> there you go, Zach. Or, or, you you, it, uh, well, I, I, I need to, I need some help on the Thomas stuff. So maybe, maybe we can, we, maybe we can, uh, we can tag team something. Absolutely. That'd be, that would be fun. That would be, that, that would, would be, be a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, I, 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 yeah. sorry. This has been a great conversation. We could keep on keeping on, yep. I know. Um, but uh, Danny, thanks so much. This is just a wonderful example of, 
you know, a, a pastor theologian doing mm. very significant, deep theological work. Um, but it is also helping you frame your pastoral ministry and how you are, how you're leading people through the complexities of, of our world and questions that are really on people's minds and that are prompting people to think about their faith and maybe question their faith and opening up resources and opportunities, I think is, it's a significant part of what we're called to do as pastor theologians. So thanks for modeling mm-hmm. that for us, Danny. Thanks so much for taking the time to do a two-parter here. This has been, been a lot of fun and really helpful information. So thanks a lot. Well, I want to thank you guys for having me on and also for the work you're doing at the CPT, which is fantastic. Anybody who's listening to this, who is a pastor and interested in theology or theologian, you should definitely check the CPT out. It's been a great experience for me the last couple of years to be a part of it. As I've gone more into full-time ministry, I'm still connected to certain academic discussions, but I'm less connected than I was relationally when I was actually in a PhD and when I was a research fellow at TEDS. Now that I'm doing full-time pastoral work, the CPT gives me a chance to connect to other pastors and theologians like yourselves and and others in a way that's really opened up some horizons for me and new and even new ways of thinking as well in terms of ecclesial theology, which is not a uh, subtopic that I was really a specialist in at all, but working in the church, it's definitely something I'm very interested in. So everybody should check out the CPT (laughs) and look into it. I don't know. um, I'll, I'll end my little plug there. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the endorsement and uh, so grateful for your your presence in our fellowship. So uh, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The host for today's episode was Joel Lawrence. Our producer and editor is Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.